Well, hello there. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. I'm having a weird day. <laughs> Same a little I need, bit. I need a nap. I got like four hours of sleep. Same. Then I had like eight million things to do today. So I, here we are. I did not have eight million things to do today. I was like, maybe I'll get a nap. Ha ha. <laughs> no. <laughs> I might still try to get a nap once we're done recording. Good for you. You're drinking a big old, big old coffee though. I uh, went out with AJ for lunch today and we went to the wine and beer store uh, because we have some dinner plans this evening. Yeah. And while we were picking out a cider, uh, the gentleman was with a child. I went, I went to say that he was with, presumably his daughter and he was wearing those big old Jenko jeans, <laughs> like huge tracks of denim. Wow. It was an interesting thing. Here, I'll send you a picture. <laughs> you took a picture? AJ took a picture. He's a private investigator. That's, That's what true. He does. He's good at sneaky photography. That's There fair. you go. I sent it to you. Oh man, they are actually yeah. real fucking jinkos. They're, they're big. There's a patch on the back that has a rhinoceros as if it's like busting out of the jeans. It was wild. I forgot how big those back calf pockets were. Right? <laughs> I bet these are original. Like I bet they are. I bet that guy has had those since he was in high school. Because he looked older than me. Yeah. And I'm I'm not a young lady. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> oh, did we do the intro? Did we rewrite it? Shit. I did. I did it. Okay. Cool. I'm responsible. Great. At least one of us is. Yep. Welcome to The Strange and Unusual, where we discuss The Strange and Unusual. This is episode 109 of our series, seeking out the weird, the unexplained, and the devious from around the world. I'm Roya. And I am Casey. And today we are talking about the infamous Lizzie Borden and her axe. Ooh. Um, if you would like to find a similar content to this, you can find us over on our social medias. Um, we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just for, search for The Strange and Unusual Podcast and look for our logo. We're also on Patreon.com slash Strange and Unusual, where there are bonus episodes if you are interested. All that information will be in the show notes, as well as in more detail at the end of the episode. You're so good at that. I'm really not. I forget like, half the time. I'm like Garbo. <laughs> I guess we don't need to tell them what we're talking about today. I don't think so. We're talking, we're, we're pretty, uh, that's, there's, there's one pretty topic. direct. <laughs> yep. So, uh, shall we do, shall we do, are we woos together since it's, it's one topic or shall we, uh, separate them by? I mean, my wee woos are basically just ghosts. <laughs> okay. And mentions of the aforementioned murders. So, wee woo, murder, axes, graphic descriptions of death, rich people and misers, parental death. Massachusetts, church, and more animal cruelty and death than you'd probably expect for this story. So, we all know the rhyme. Bitch took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she's out, she'd done, gave her father 41. It's a great story. But the rhyme, somewhat like this story, is a mix of fact and fiction. I always like to note ahead of time when there may be factual errors with my research, so here it is. I did my absolute best to mull over several credible resources uh, like Smithsonian and the Britannica, as well as primary sources that I could find, namely in newspapers, which were, by the way, super fucking biased. And uh, it took some, I took some inspiration from Spooky New England on TikTok. And before you laugh, she worked at the Lizzie Borden B&B for some time and has been featured on other podcasts for her extensive research into the story as a Lizzie defender. Um, she's probably got hundreds of videos on Lizzie. If you're interested, it is spooky New England, all one word on TikTok. I really do recommend she has some crazy amounts of content over there. So you'll also probably get a little bit of emotional whiplash writing or reading, hearing about this, I got it when I was writing about this, uh, because one minute you're like, yeah, Lizzie, get it. And the next you're like, yo, Lizzie, get fucked. Suffice to say, I compiled as much as I could to come up with the best mashup of events. And here you go. I think, I think Roy and I were talking in the last episode. I don't know if it made it into the episode, but there's, there's this amount of bias that comes with this sort of conversation of this. There are people who believe one side and there are people who believe the other and they, they use facts to form their opinion by warping those facts. So there's not 
a whole lot of actual uh there's a word i'm thinking of it's not physical evidence it is circumstantial yeah there's a lot of circumstantial but i'm trying to think there's not a lot of like clear cut it's very biased in in either direction Mm -hmm. there's a word i'm trying to think of that i will never think of so i'm just gonna keep going with the story and maybe i'll shout it out somewhere in the middle so hearsay no i'll figure it out someday (laughs) i feel like it starts with a c anyway lizzie borden uh was born lizzie andrew borden not elizabeth not elizabeth not anything like that lizzie was her name she was born on july 19th 1860 in fall river massachusetts her father andrew borden was of english and welsh descent uh he grew up mostly uh like not poor but modest and he struggled a lot in his early adulthood despite coming from a family of means eventually he became wealthy on his own selling furniture and caskets then getting into property development and becoming the president of a local bank he was despite his wealth notably frugal they had a rather small home in comparison to other people in their tax bracket no indoor plumbing which wasn't totally uncommon but was becoming the standard by 1840 so this is 20 years out from that there's still no running water in their home They lived in a less fashionable area of town, uh, which may or may not have been uh, surrounded by immigrants, which may or may not play a factor here. And he was cheap about furniture and food, and it embarrassed Lizzie and her older sister, Emma. (laughs) Their mother, Sarah Anthony Morse Borden, uh, died shortly after Lizzie was born in 1863. In 1865, not terribly long after her death, he remarried to Abby Durfee Gray. Durfee is such a fun (laughs) middle name. It's said that Emma and Lizzie didn't get along with Abby, but it was unclear whether that was from the time that they married or as they got older. One source said that Lizzie only called her Mrs. Borden and that the sisters suspected Abby of only wanting to marry their father for his money. You get big evil stepmom vibes from the Lizzie perspective on this. Mm Mm-hmm. The sisters, however, were incredibly close, and Emma was acting as something of a stand-in mother for Lizzie. Despite the tensions of being embarrassed by their father and suspicious of their stepmother, the sisters actually remained in the family home well into adulthood. I think at the time of the crime, Lizzie was 32, and Emma was 41, I believe. So they helped their father manage uh, some of his rental properties, and Lizzie was specifically a very active member of the central congregationalist church she not only taught uh, sunday school lessons but she worked with the christian endeavor society and the women's christian temperance union this of course doesn't mean anything looking at you btk she was generally considered sweet and harmless by most accounts Uh, there are some mentions uh, of her being like a klepto and she would steal things that her father would basically say hey put it on my tab but I, i didn't find any source for that it was just somebody mentioned it Other stories came out that she also might have had a uh, certain taste for hurting animals and possibly even killed her stepmother's cat. But again, these were from reporters trying to sell newspapers and those sources. Actually, there were other sources that said uh, she was something of an animal lover, which may be important later. And I'll potentially be saying that a number of times. (laughs) Conversely, one source said that she was actually known, like I said, for being very kind to others. And she even made turkey dinners for underprivileged children on Christmas. The family lived in relative comfort despite Andrew's frugal nature, and they even had a live-in maid, Bridget Sullivan, who emigrated to the U.S. from Ireland. It was said that Bridget was actually called Maggie by the family, or maybe just the two daughters, because that was their previous maid's name, like they couldn't be bothered to learn the name Bridget. (laughs) Despite the comforts they enjoyed, I already mentioned there was no small amount of tension in the house. Bridget Sullivan said that Emma and Lizzie rarely ate dinner with the family. There was one story that popped up a number of times that in May of 1892, Andrew purchased a hatchet and killed some pigeons that had been roosting in the barn. And this is an excellent example of how the story varies because it's brought up across a number of different sources, but it all have they all have differing de- details from one suggesting that these birds were very dear to Lizzie and she recently even built them roosts and she considered them pets to another source saying they actually were there on purpose for meat and eggs. And that he didn't buy a hatchet, but he wrung their necks. And Lizzie was not particularly attached to them. That's what I'm dealing with here, people. Okay. <laughs> so while there were some sources saying that the relationship was strained, others said that Lizzie and her dad were actually, despite their differences, quite close. And that he wore her high school graduation ring on his pinky at all times. It's agreed on across the board, however, that the sisters weren't super keen on their dad putting Abby's name on property. 
In one case, Abby's sister was about to be evicted from her home. So Andrew bought the house and just gave it to his sister-in-law as a gift. This seems like a kind gesture, but his daughters were like, uh, yo, where's, where's our fucking house, dude? Which, you know, fair. So he actually does end up giving them a house. It was his childhood home, but they sell it back to him for full price. (laughs) Uh, This may have been the tension that um, this may have been a tension that stretched beyond nuclear family. Sarah's brother, remember John's first wife, John V. Morse, ended up visiting the family on August 3rd, 1892, and he stayed in the guest room overnight. This is important later. So here's the meat and potatoes of what happened. It's a sunny summer morning on August 4th, 1892. The family has been ill for a couple of days. Abby actually suspected somebody might have been trying to poison her husband because Andrew was a miser, not particularly well liked in town while he was respected. Um, But that's also important later. Generally accepted that it was actually just food poisoning because of Andrew's frugalness. Like he wasn't willing to get rid of, quote, perfectly good meat that had probably gone bad because it was the peak of fucking summer. I read both swordfish and mutton as a potential culprit, but it suggested that they'd been eating off of these leftovers for several days and the whole family got food poisoning. Bridget at one point even had to go outside and vomit after serving the family breakfast of those leftovers because she was so ill. So yeah, no running water in that bitch. Yep. (laughs) She had to go outside to puke. Can't do it inside. So Andrew and Abby Borden eat their breakfast on this totally normal day where nothing bad is about to happen. Yep. They're joined by John Morse. Once they finish eating, the man folk go and have a potentially heated conversation. Uh, I say this because Lizzie's testimony later remarks that she had heard her father and Mr. Morse yelling at each other the night before. Morse leaves the home between 845 and 850 that morning. Andrew left around 9 to take his morning walk around town, checking in on some properties, stopping at the bank. Lizzie slept in that morning and took her breakfast alone. Emma was out visiting with some friends uh, the night before. Or, sorry, yeah, Emma, not Lizzie. Emma was out visiting her friends out of, out of town, which wasn't exactly in character for her. She was pretty much a homebody from what I understood. She didn't go out a lot. Uh, And Abby had gone upstairs to clean the guest bedroom that Morse had stayed in and was supposed to stay in again that evening. Bridget had been asked to wash all the windows inside and out and had to let Mr. Borden in at some point as the doors had been kept locked. Important later. Uh, And then she went upstairs to take a nap. One thing to note here is that this door apparently had three locks on it and only two of them were normally locked or were supposed to be locked. And Andrew didn't have a key for the third lock on him. So Bridget later testified that the lock seemed to be jammed. She had to open the door for him and she was cursing at it. And she hears a giggle from upstairs, presumably Lizzie. Also in that testimony, she said that she had gone upstairs to rest around 11 a.m. and hadn't heard any doors open or closed, which she normally would from her room. She said the only door that would have remained unlocked was the one that Lizzie was using to go out to the barn. So Andrew had come back home. Like I said, there was this big fiasco with the door locks, took care of a few things and decides he's going to take a nap on the sofa in the sitting room. Lizzie, meanwhile, is outside, allegedly, in the barn looking for fishing weights for a trip she was supposed to be taking. And she said she came back inside around 1115 and found her father brutally murdered. She called for, quote, Maggie first uh, and sent her across the street to a family physician's home. Um, Maybe not. And the police arrived soon after. So the police go... You know, they come and they start to investigate and they say, hey, where's Abby? Somebody should probably fucking tell her her husband's dead. And Lizzie is like, oh, she got a note requesting that she go visit some ill friend and she's probably out in town. No letter was found. No courier was ever found. No friend was ever found. Bridget and a neighbor who had ended up coming over to help were the ones who went upstairs and found the body of Abby in the guest room laying in a similar state covered in blood. Examiners of the time determined Abby had died at least an hour prior to Andrew due to the amount of blood that had dried and coagulated versus Andrew, who was fairly fresh and drippy. Uh, I say at the time because our understanding of blood and crime scene investigations have changed significantly since 1892. I mean, hell, since 1992. But modern investigators, including this retired Scotland Yard investigator from the Smithsonian show that I watched on it, believe that the case... um, or this, sorry, believe that this may not be the case and they could have been killed in as little as 20 minutes apart due to the summer heat, sun hitting the, the windows on the room that she was in, uh, the way heat rises, making the upstairs warmer, mm-hmm. blood dries faster in warmth and sunshine. So it probably wasn't that far apart at all. 
No murder weapon was found, though there was a small axe that was found without a handle in the basement. There had been a handle, but it looked like it had been cut off and like it was a clean cut. No blood was found on the axe, but allegedly it looked like it was burnt or covered in soot. Both Bridget and Lizzie claimed that they heard no screams, but Abby had been struck 18 to 19 times and Andrew 10 to 11 times. There was no sign of robbery or sexual assault. One of Andrew's eyes had been split open, which is not fun. An interesting part of this case that I found was that it was a very early on um, example of crime scene photography, which means, yes, you can look at these horrible, bloody photos of Andrew's butcher face and Abby's bloody mess on the floor. But I warn you, it's going to ruin your day, especially people trying to make them more like enhanced. Mm. Like, Yeah, there's um, photos of a couple of the victims of Jack the Ripper, Jack specific- the Ripper yeah. specifically <laughs> the last victim, and they colorized that photo for no discernible yeah. reason. No, thanks. <laughs> So the police were initially on the random intruder train suspecting a foreigner because of course they did and even arresting a Portuguese immigrant in the first few hours after the murder. But they became suspicious of Lizzie because of how calm she was. Her stories seemed to deviate from one telly to the next. First she was outside and then she was upstairs and neither woman Bridget nor Lizzie had blood on their dress save for a speck of blood on the one of like Lizzie's underskirts uh, and she said she was on her period. They actually found a bucket of bloodied rags in the basement which Bridget did say she was supposed to clean or she was going to clean um, but there wasn't enough blood in that bucket uh, to have been from cleaning up the viscera that a person would need to from killing these two people. Lizzie also hadn't allowed police to search her room right off. She had some time alone in her room before they ended up searching but what did really... What did she really do in terms of looking guilty? Well, she was caught burning a dress the next day. <laughs> Not a good look. Also, the funeral was held on August 6th, and people thought it was suspicious that she was not wearing mourning clothes. I would remind you, however, that she's essentially under house arrest at this time, so she couldn't exactly go shopping. And she had a frugal father who I doubt he would just be like, yeah, you can have a dress just in case. Like, it doesn't, doesn't add up for me necessarily. I can see how she wouldn't be wearing morning clothes is all I'm saying. She's arrested on August 11th for the murders and kept in prison until her trial nine months later the following year. You looked like you had something to say about the dress information. Well, the the, the situation is that wearing morning clothes is a, a fact of Victorian people's lives. Yes. And I I do find it hard to believe that she would not have a black dress for funerals because people were literally dying left and right in the 1800s. <laughs> That's, fair. That's fair. And, you know, granted, her morning clothes, I, I don't know the specifications of morning clothes for a parent or like the requirements for mourning for a parent versus mourning for like a spouse right, or a child. But I do find it difficult to believe that she would not have a black dress. Yeah, or, accurate. You know, whatever she needs. Yeah, appropriate morning attire because while he was a frugal man, it's clear that he does have some standing within the community and he doesn't necessarily want his family to be ostracized or seen as outsiders of the community. And by not following the standard practices of the time period, that would definitely set off red flags and and problems for them. But yeah, I mean... It's possible she just couldn't get to her wardrobe to get a black dress, but I find yeah, it hard to believe I don't know that she they, wouldn't have access to one. I don't know if they took her wardrobe to search. Like, that's that's a very valid point. They She could have, they might have said, hey, we're going to take your dresses and you have this one blue dress to wear for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that goes. Um, that would be an interesting thing to, to look into. But regardless... Uh, She was arrested on August 11th for those murders, kept in prison. Um, And while this all seems pretty clear cut, there's definitely some information and discrepancies worth mentioning. Let's start with Lizzie. She had no solid alibi and couldn't keep her story straight. She didn't seem particularly upset about the whole ordeal. One Smithsonian article suggested it was because many Irish immigrants were becoming policemen. And so when they interviewed Lizzie, she wasn't taking them seriously because she thought they were beneath her. The, ar- the article also started with that she was obviously guilty. So I'm inclined to agree here that maybe this is 
a little bit prejudice, um, but also Etheridge. So the more popular opinion has been that she was on a fucking high dose of morphine to help her sleep, uh, which according to her own doctor's testimony would have definitely aided in her confusion and lack of reaction. Another wrench in this is the blood evidence. Let's say Lizzie did pull off this well-planned murder if the murders took place only 20 minutes apart, but the investigators insist it was more than an hour, that's an extra 40 minutes someone would have to come up with an alibi. Like, no wonder it sounded like she was scrambling if she was guilty. Um, alternatively, did she, if, if he was found fresh, quote, would she have time to clean up that amount of blood from her hair and her face and not leave any evidence behind. I'm not inclined to think that she would. Yeah. So another cog in this wheel is a clerk from a local pharmacy. His name was Eli Bentz. Uh, was known to have claimed or is yeah claimed that Lizzie came into the store to order some prussic acid the day before the murder. It's a poison. It's hydrogen cyanide. Lizzie denied attempting to make such a purchase or even having been in the pharmacy recently. And some have suggested that Lizzie was a woman who had chores and that there's every possibility that this acid was used as some kind of cleaning agent or a pest control poison. In my research, uh, the only results I got for this were whaling harpoons that were coated in the stuff to kill whales more quickly and chemical warfare. And whoo boy, <laughs> it's toxic stuff. Like I did eventually find that it was used for strengthening ore and making synthetic textiles. But I also have my doubts that she was into any of that. Yeah. Bence claimed that he asked he asked Lizzie why she wanted it, and she said it was to mend a sealskin bag or cape. However, Spooky New England pointed out that Eli Bence was a shitty witness. She said that he was known to have mistaken identities in the past, having punched the wrong dude in the face, as well as <laughs> as well as thinking that somebody who had been dead walked into his store. Yeah, so how that's about pretty the significant. Yeah, right. How about the dress? So I mentioned that she was on some kind of house arrest. Police were at her home at this time. She would have been completely stupid or totally innocent if she was going to burn a dress in a stove with police surrounding her. Yeah. Evidently, this was also something Lizzie had been planning to do. Uh, she had intended to burn that particular dress because she had gotten paint on the sleeve. And the whole dress is now absolutely ruined. I mean, depending Lizzie's on how much paint you got on the sleeve. Well... Lizzie's friend Alice Russell came forward and snitched because that's not exactly normal. Old clothes were generally passed along to service or used as rags, not just burned entirely. That's true. That does make sense. So speaking of Alice, Lizzie claimed that she had visited Alice the night before the murders. Alice testified that Lizzie seemed not quite herself and like she was frightened and she mentioned being worried about her dad and that she thought something bad was going to happen to him, which to be fair could have been a cover-up for herself or someone she might have been in cahoots with but even abby seemed to be worried that someone had it out for her husband when she thought they were being poisoned there are some theories that lizzie was epileptic and entered this fugue state and killed them but eh, there's not really a whole lot to back that one up uh there's allegedly an ice cream man who actually saw lizzie outside that morning around 11:05, when the murders would have been taking place lizzie's only formal testimony was given at the original inquest where she got no counsel. They wouldn't allow her to have a lawyer. So guess what? Bish bash bosh, for better or worse, it gets thrown out because it can't be used as evidence. Yeah. They didn't allow her to have a lawyer. There's actually no documentation of that first testimony that survived. Only newspaper reports, which might have leaned one way or another. And at her trial, which started in June 1893, she was never put on the stand. Another fun fact about the trial? Uh, the prosecution cut off her parents' heads and presented the skulls as evidence. Metal. They even took the axe that they suspected was the murder weapon and were trying to like show the jury how the axe fit into the holes that had been made. Interestingly, the, bra the, braid, the blade was actually not the same size and were actually um, consistent with something smaller like maybe a knife or some butcher's tools, which might be important later. There were a lot of groups that supported Lizzie, including her women's temperance group, but also just suffragettes who insisted that because women were unable to vote and therefore unable to serve on a jury, she didn't get access to a fair trial with a jury of her peers. Yep. The men on her jury, however, were also on Lizzie's side, as they and many others who were unable to picture such a horrific crime being committed by a woman of about five foot four. And actually, one source, I can't remember where I read this. I was just so tickled. <laughs> 
it said that the jury basically didn't want to hear any of the blood evidence after they found out Lizzie was on her period. <laughs> Gross. Throw it all away. So the judge was seemingly on her side as well, having told the jury, if the evidence falls short of providing such conviction in your mind, although it may raise suspicion of guilt or even a strong probability of guilt, it would be your plain duty to return with a verdict of not guilty. Alternatively, the papers were like having a field day and using her as a headline and all sorts of crazy shit saying whatever they wanted. So on June 20th, 1893, Lizzie received her verdict. It took the jury only 90 minutes to deliberate, and with nothing but a pile of circumstantial evidence, they came back with a verdict of not guilty. Lindsay, uh, sorry. Lizzie allegedly yelled out, sank in her chair, and started crying tears of joy. And she got to go home. She stayed in Fall River, where she and her sister purchased a fine home in the more affluent neighborhood that they wanted to live in, and she quickly became a pariah. Being acquitted doesn't mean you're innocent. Looking at you, OJ. Yeah. So she changed her name from Lizzie to Lisbeth uh, to try to distance herself from the notoriety as if that big name change was going to make a whole lot of difference. But she was ostracized. Uh, people wouldn't welcome her in her church. Kids threw rocks and rotten eggs at her house. And even those who'd once supported her turned their backs because if you're seen with somebody who is publicly ostracized, guess what happens to you? So not to say that Lizzie was completely alone. She actually became friends. um, She was a fan of the theater and she became friends with an actress named Nance O'Neill. She was asked if she she asked if she could meet the actress after a show and they became friends. And this relationship is actually one of those um, leading people to think that Lizzie might have actually been a lesbian. The public nature of her relationship with Nance O'Neill saw rumors during her lifetime and not just after the fact. Time Magazine even suggested that Emma disapproved of the friendship, and that is perhaps why Emma moved out of their home in 1905, and the two never spoke again. She married, or she never married, and she had no children, and she died of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927. Emma died something like 10 days later, even though she was actually 10 years older. No one came to her funeral. It was said that even the cards were removed from flowers so that no one would be seen as her friend. Wow. It's estimated at the time of her death, she would have been worth a little under $5 million in today's money. Wow. She left the, yeah, she left the equivalent of $600,000 to the Fall River Animal Rescue League. The rest went to friends and cousins and a small trust was made for the perpetual care of her father's grave. After the trial, it didn't seem like the police were all that interested in finding the actual killer. No one was ever found guilty of the crime. It's generally believed that Lizzie got away with murder. It's suggested that she put her father's jacket on backwards to cover her dress while she smacked the shit out of his face with whatever she hit him with. And that's why it was all balled up and bloodied behind his his head. And you can see it in the picture Um, and not in a neat pile or hung up as it normally would have been. Others think she might have been an accomplice to someone else or not involved at all. So let's go through some theories. Yay. Speculating wildly. Number one, John V. Morse. So I mentioned that TikTok creator, Spooky New England, this is the one that she points her figure finger at. So that's why I'm starting here. His alibi for the murder, or like for the day of the murder of the time, was airtight. Like suspiciously airtight. <laughs> <laughs> he knew the exact number of the train car and the number of the conductor on the train that he'd gotten onto. He made it a point to introduce himself to six priests in the train car that he was in. Uh, the Smithsonian <laughs> special I mentioned actually said it was... People remembered those six priests, but nobody remembered witnessing John Morse. Uh, he got just over a mile away at the time of the murder, so there's no reason he couldn't have been at the t- at the scene of the murders and then fucking booked it. Well, yeah, to because he was. because unless you have something like indicating on the body exactly the moment, yeah, like a broken watch or something, yep. then even now you've got yeah. uh, you know, it could be from okay. this time to this time. It's like when a cable guy shows up between, you know, noon and three. Yeah. And then they show up at six and wonder why you don't want to help them. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Like, they don't know exactly what time it's. And and they think there's this hour in between when most current scientists are like, nah, probably not. So there's no reason he couldn't have come back and done these murders. He also wouldn't have been out of place in the home since he was staying there. It also lends credence to the idea that since there was no uh, 
scream. The victim probably knew their attacker. He wouldn't have been suspicious going into the guest room either where she was cleaning. She would have been like, oh, you're back early. Whack, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, if so- if she was even aware that he was in there, because the, right. the whole thing is that she's facing away from him mm-hmm. and then uh, Andrew was asleep on the couch. So both of them were yep. taken without them realizing what was happening. What was happening. Yeah, but absolutely. But the, um, the curiosity that I have and the thing that has always made me consider a like male um who actually committed the murder is that if these wounds are made by something that is more shallow than the axe that she's that is associated with the murders which is already a small axe yep it makes me wonder about someone who is five four and their ability to bring the force down Mm-hmm. To kill someone or incapacitate them in one swing so they one don't swing. scream. Yep, yep. Because like, while yeah, there are, and it's it's completely possible. I'm not saying that it's impossible that you know she was a woman who had a lot of of physical chores and things like that. I have no doubt that she was strong physically, um, because she wasn't like you know an idle woman necessarily. Right. And so, but for there not to be any noise. That means, yep. and, and it's not a throat being slit kind of attack, mm-hmm. then to me, that means that that first shot incapacitated both individuals. With that in mind, John Morse was over six feet tall, and he'd been a butcher by trade. So he would have had the strength, the the physics were on his side. Yes. Well, I, and, I, and also the potential knowledge of where to strike to, yeah. to kill in an instant. Because, like, that... you know, you don't want, while, yeah, there are some fucked up people like uh, Catherine Knight and shit, yeah. you know, as a standard, most butchers don't want the animal to have to go through any more pain than they already will have to go through. And so it makes sense that you would want a a clear, concise shot, yeah, like one, one blow to take out the animal as quickly as possible. So... It, I mean, if you can do it, like, this is really fucked up and morbid, but, like, if you can do it to a pig, you can do it to a human. Yeah, and so he had he had the ability, he had tools that would have fit what they found for the, like, size of the of the weapon. Um, it's, it's also weird to me, he ended up staying again that night, and he stayed in the bloody guest room the night after the murders happened. Like, yeah, no. Just, like, chilling. Uh, so what was his motive? Uh, well, he was Sarah's brother, and there was a potential land dispute between John and Andrew. Uh, I told you that they had been shouting at each other per Lizzie's testimony the night before. With Andrew out of the way, the dispute would be solved. Also consider that his nieces are concerned about their inheritance with their stepmother um, being put on pieces of property. Yeah. If he dies and all of her her name is on everything, they could end up with nothing. Yeah. So there's some speculation that Lizzie and John were actually working together or concocted this plan together. Uh, In the missing testimony by Lizzie, she mentions that she saw a man creeping around the house the night prior to the murders and describes this man as being short. Uh, There's a potential here for her saying that in an effort to throw investigators off the scent of John Morse, but also that Morse might have hired a killer. And that's one theory is that he uh, hired another butcher to do the dirty work. And was able to get him in and out because he was there at the house. Some also suspected it could have been Bridget the maid. After the murder, Bridget left the home that evening with a bundle that nobody seemed to want to investigate. They just let her go. Uh, She stayed elsewhere for two days, but was seen going into town and seemed to be in great spirits and was well-dressed. She was known to not like working for the Bordens. She refused to confirm or deny this in court, but allegedly she had confided into a friend into a friend why did i write that (laughs) she confided in a friend i think i might i think i meant to say she confided in a friend or to a friend and they ended up together (laughs) she had tried to she tried to quit and leave her job several times but abby kept offering her her more money she was like she didn't want to work under all the tension in the house but she kept saying all right well here's here you know here's five (laughs) hundred dollars please stay. Uh, She was 26 years old at the time. She was unmarried. She had been in the state for only seven years and she'd been working for the Bordens for like two and a half to three years. She was the only maid in the house. There's some speculation that she and Lizzie also worked together and that they were potentially lovers backed up by the idea that that Lizzie had a romantic relationship with Nance O'Neill. 
Others suggest that perhaps the three of them were working in cahoots. And regardless, once the police said it was cool for her to leave, Bridget was fucking gone. She's yeah, like, I'm getting why, the fuck out of why here. Why would she stick around for things to come back to be her fault? <laughs> yeah. And there are other more bizarre theories. There's this one story that I found super interesting, and I'm not sure if you've heard this one. On August 17th, after Lizzie had been arrested, Emma Borden got a letter from a man named Rob Rib- Sam Rabinsky. Sorry, I was about to say Rob Saminsky, but that's not it. It's, it's Sam Robinsky. This letter basically said that he had found out about the murder, and he was only a few miles away from Fall River on that day. While he was on the road to New Bedford, he met a man who was covered in blood, who said he had worked on a farm and that he could never get his wages. So he had to go and fight with the farmer, but ended up running away and didn't get any of his money. He said he felt bad for the man and helped him to clean up and shine his boots, only later realizing, after he found out about these murders, that he probably just helped this dude get on a train to Boston. He asked Emma not to contact police because he didn't want to get involved and worried he would get in trouble. Notably... Andrew had a farm and Bridget had actually mentioned someone coming around in her testimony. She noted that there was a man from the farm who used to come and do some chores. His name was Alfred. She couldn't remember his last name. Some suggest that there was an illegitimate son and that Lizzie helped cover it up like that. She like gave him money in exchange for killing their dad. Uh, There were some theories that a neighboring doctor had ill feelings toward the Bordens and may have killed them, sneaking the murder weapon out of his out in his valise. There was an unsigned letter amongst the primary sources, uh, and it claims uh, on the day of the murder, I was coming towards Fall River. I met Dr. Bowen and a young man in a carriage driving so fast that I thought at the time someone was dying. I am well acquainted with him, but never saw him look so wild. It was about 15 minutes to 11 the doctor had been had hold the reins with both hands driving for dear life as dr bowen had has dr bowen ever been questioned where he was on the morning of the murder this is the truth and nothing but the truth sorry it's written in like weird oldie language so had to <laughs> translate as i was reading so while there's a lot of circles circumstantial evidence against lizzie borden nothing was there to physically implicate her to the crime And if Andrew was truly the curmudgeonly miser that he seemed to have been, then there could have been any number of people with motive, with or without Lizzie in cahoots. The website LizzieAndrewBorden.com actually lists over 50 potential suspects based on tips from primary sources. And it's unlikely that we'll ever know who actually did it. I'm inclined to believe that she was maybe in on it, but I don't think she was the one wielding the axe, if it was an axe, which I don't think it was. One more interesting thing. Uh, about a year later, some kids were playing like baseball or something and they hit their, their ball up onto a neighbor's roof. When they went up to investigate and try to find their ball, they actually found a hatchet that was much smaller and was on top of the neighbor's roof hmm. and uh, had been up there for some time, but it looked like it had been new other than just weathered. It wasn't like it had a lot of signs of usage just that it was, you know, rained on and, and sun beating down on it. Um, but I don't think they ever did anything with that information because they were like, yeah, who cares? I mean, especially <laughs> now, but like, yeah. Well, I, I, mean, I mean, at the time, this yeah. was only a year after Lizzie's, or this would have been around the time Lizzie had been acquitted. Yeah, well, I mean, but they're they're looking at things from the perspective of Lizzie is guilty and now we'll just make her pay for it for the rest of her life while she lives free, yeah. but not actually free because of the societal standards of Victorians. If I had that fucking money, I'd have been gone. <laughs> like moved like, to another country. I might have gone. She's in Massachusetts. I might have gone to New York and been like, I'm still kind of close to my family. What's There's a theater over? here. I love the theater. Let's go. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's what I got on Lizzie. There's a like I said, there's just there's so many different people it could have been or different combinations of people. Yeah. The letter from Sam Brobitsky was super fucking weird. Um, and could have been anybody lying. Yeah. You know, it could have been Sam Rabinsky. Yeah. I mean, I tend to believe that I, I think that minimally, I feel like minimally she was aware of it, at least to a degree of having talked about doing it, but maybe not actually like intending on it happening and then coming home and like John Morris has already done it. Yeah. But, um, because I don't know, intelligence wise, between the two yeah. you know and that's something and that if you look at pictures of that dude he is a creepy motherfucker i could see him doing it <laughs> don't judge a book by its cover casey mm. 
<laughs> some books have really nice covers and are really good books. I'm just saying. I hope I, I hope I taught you something new today. You did. You uh, told me more about the theories that I didn't know. Well, there you go. Tell me about the ghosts. All right. All right. So since Casey just told us all about Lizzie Borden, the deaths of her father and her stepmother and the theories that run rampant all over the case, I'm here to talk about the house and the hauntings. So what do you do with an allegedly super haunted home where a couple of brutal murders took place? Well, you turn it into a bed and breakfast, of course. Of course you do. Capitalism, BB. Uh, you can stay at the Lizzie Borden house overnight. You can stay in the room where Abby's murder happened. You can take a house tour, a ghost tour, and even book a ghost hunting session. The house has been painstakingly reverted to the as close to the original state as they could, um, with recreated furniture and some fixtures in the same positioning as surviving pictures of the home indicate. Mm. The hardware on the doors is all original, and there is a case in the house that contains artifacts from the actual murders themselves. Including, like, if you stay in Abby's rooms, they're just framed pictures of her uh, dead body on the floor. Oh, lovely. And they have a recreated um, couch that looks exactly like the couch that her dad, that Andrew died on. Mm -hmm. So you can uh, recreate the picture. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. Lovely. There's also framed pictures, obviously, of his dead body all around the house as well. And a gift shop, which I'm sure sells pictures of both of their dead bodies. (laughs) Uh, postcards. <laughs> I'll send you one. Okay, please. <laughs> like I did with the mega colon from, <laughs> from the mooter. Um, so another charming little detail that I'm sure everyone will want to know because some of you freaks will be rushing out to go to the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast, I'm sure. <laughs> if you eat in the dining room, you get to eat on the same table where Abby and Andrew were autopsied in 19 or 1892. Holy shit. I do like that idea. <laughs> um, there is no question that the Lizzie Borden house is on just about every top 10 most haunted hotels in the U.S. and even in the world. Um, some general... I had a really hard time finding actual, like, testimony or reports of what specifically has happened to real individuals. So I do apologize because about halfway through my notes, it just devolves into me narrating an episode of Ghost Adventures. <laughs> you should have looked at spooky new england she worked there she had a bunch of experience well i didn't know about her i didn't know you didn't know about her now you know i didn't know about her well now i know okay (laughs) now that we both know um so some of the general reports about the haunting consists of people seeing spectral cats wandering around the house um apparitions rocking chairs that begin to rock on their own and even reports of lizzie being seen in the home and choking guests that sleep in her room Ooh. also andrew freaky yeah also andrew is evidently like terribly mean to people unless you give him money that sounds right that sounds like him yeah so there's just like a a uh dresser in the room that just has like coins on it and if you mess with the coins he'll like annoy you all night and if you leave coins for him he'll leave you alone huh i wonder if he knows that they uh the inflation on those (laughs) they're not worth a whole lot sir um there have been some photos captured of strange anomalies by people's beds uh noises originating from the inside of wardrobes which no fucking thank you (laughs) uh mysterious footsteps laughter and being touched by a hand while falling asleep again she freaky (laughs) um to aid in this research like i said i took one for the team and watched an early episode of ghost adventures god when i had to watch that one about eastern state i do not i do not envy you (laughs) (laughs) um mainly because i wanted because i know that they interview people who have done like seances Mm -hmm. and and investigations and stuff like that in the buildings that they're going to so that was more what i was interested in but they did get some interesting evidence, which we'll get into. Um, also, I literally typed in here, LOL, Zach Baggins thinks that the murderer may have been possessed by a demon. <laughs> Was he wearing his Ed Hardy? Probably. <laughs> um, so two male investigators are interviewed, uh, Matt Moniz and Tim Weisberg, uh, who reported a woman that was investigating with them got scratched pretty badly by an unseen entity. Um, after the attack, Tim decided to antagonize the entity and tell it to pick on someone its own size. How he knew its size is a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
As soon as he challenged the spirit, he was like pushed aggressively back against the door behind him, and they reported being able to see red marks like handprints on his arms from where he had been grabbed and physically pushed against the door and like pushed with such a force that like he hit the door and you could hear it in the audio that they had wow um on an investigation matt and the investigation team had set up static cameras in various rooms like you do to try to catch spirit activity he reported and had a video um that a camera that was filming in an empty room i think it was the um some of the rooms have been turned into suites and some of the rooms are individual rooms because I looked into like how the booking works and the costs. The rooms are all between like 250 and 350 and they bed between like 5 to 3 people depending on which room it is. Um and so I think that it's in the attic room which would have been Bridget's room. Bridget's room, yeah. And um so they have a camera set up where it's kind of it's looking into the other bedroom that's attached mm-hmm. to the suite and then there are people who are in the other bedroom of the suite and so it's looking at no one the camera is looking at no one and then there are people over on the other side and then while it's filming it looks like just like someone picks up the camera roughly and like turns it aggressively to look at the people that are in the other room and so they tried to debunk that saying maybe someone stepped on the cable and accidentally like pulled it or something so they go and they're trying to uh recreate possible things that could have happened if someone bumped it if someone steps on the cable if this thing that thing people walking around the room did someone somehow step on a you know a plank that caused it to pop up and move it you know who knows so they're trying to recreate everything and they finally determine that they basically can't and they uh go and they reset the camera back to the original position and almost immediately as the person who's like stepping away from resetting the camera the camera picks up again and turns back into the other room. Oh, wow. Um, and they're not saying... The the way that they're phrasing it is saying that it's not the camera on the tripod turning. It is the, the whole, whole tripod. tripod picking up and turning. Like, and there's no way that a secret producer could have been behind there doing I it? I mean, this is, this is an investigation video, allegedly. Um, yeah. Not one from the actual Ghost Adventures oh, guys. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Um, but yeah, there's totally room for there to have been someone behind it moving the camera got it there's nothing saying that that couldn't have happened um but while there are like i said there are people in the other side of the room um they're not near the camera again not taking away the fact that someone could be on the other side that we're just not seeing yeah but it doesn't look like anyone that the camera is kind of facing towards are moderately close to the camera to be able to mess with anything okay um so Eleanor Theobald was a tour guide at the house and reported being uneasy in the basement, um, like many basements. Yeah. She reported hearing footsteps following her back up the stairs after she went down to get supplies. And after that, she is 100% confident that there is some sort of spirit in the basement. Oh, wow. Because she's like, she's never been that she's never been scared in the house until that happened. And just hearing her footsteps being echoed on the stairs following her up. Which, fair. (laughs) Yeah. No can blame you there. Um, Liz Nowicki uh, is a spirit medium. Spoke about a wild seance that she was involved in at the house. She stated that everything was going perfectly normal. And then suddenly everyone in the room was like fuzzy to her. Like she couldn't make out features she couldn't say who was who it's like she didn't recognize anybody um and the room was distorted and she actually forgot where she was for a portion of time wow um she also confirmed that the camera moving i talked about earlier was real because she was actually part of that investigation she was in the video oh okay um so cat woods who is a daughter of the owner at the time of the episode for filming they've got a new owner yeah, now there's a new owner now um reported being on a tour of the house with some guests and she was looking at a pendant on a necklace that was laid out on a dresser in abby's room and she felt like someone grabbed her ear and pulled her away from it like how a kid would get pulled away from something they weren't supposed to be touching years ago mm-hmm. you know not something that she probably would have experienced in you know 2011 <laughs> right um cat sister lauren sorry 
Cat's sister Lauren won't even go into the home, basically. Uh, she had a traumatic experience when she was little, I think she says seven, where she went into Bridget's room and then was just like standing there and just passed out. Whoa. With like no history of that happening to her, no reason for it. I mean, it's just a three story house, like not including right. the basement. So it's not like you're really high up and like right. it could affect you or something. And there wasn't anything medically wrong with her. Basically, after they got her out of the room, she was fine. There's also. I go. <laughs> Uh, there's also additional reports of death on the property, and the upper floors are um, said to be the home of two spirits of children who were murdered there 50 years prior to the Borden murders. Interesting. Um, so the team goes to a cemetery and has a very dumb conversation about death and souls. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they find... Uh, a guy who's done a lot of research into the history of the case, the family, things like that. And he says that in 1948, Andrew Borden's uncle and aunt lived immediately next door on the same piece of property. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I heard about this. Yeah. And his aunt reportedly attempted to drown their three children in a well. And two mm -hmm. of the children died and one survived. And then the mother slit her own throat with a straight razor and died. Yep. So there's some uh, consideration that there's a Borden curse or that the land is cursed and blah, blah, blah. So what I had heard about that is that that aunt was actually not related to Andrew. Like he was the, the uncle was the blood relation yeah. to Andrew. And so, th so I always, I was like, that's really interesting. And I wonder if maybe she like brought some bad juju into the family. <laughs> um, so Tim, one of the investigators suggests a theory that's not unlike Amityville where there's some sort of dark force within the home or the land causing the discourse within the family, which then culminates in the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. Right. Um, so while they start their investigation, they're using a REM pod and Zach asks, and, and that basically it's like one beep for yes, two beeps for no on yeah. questions. And Zach asks, uh, do you want to hurt us? And the pod just beeps once in the affirmative, which made me laugh so hard because it's just like as soon as he finishes the sentences, it's just like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. In fact, Mr. Ed Hardy wearing motherfucker. <laughs> um, they did have some pretty significant temperature changes within the home as well during the rim pods uh, segment, uh, despite having turned off all the air conditioning. And this is, uh, while it's not a new home, it's been renovated and things like that. So you wouldn't yeah. expect there to be like huge noticeable drafts and things like that. Though I did read a review about the um, the bed and breakfast that said that they definitely could have used more heat throughout the night. <laughs> so this is that. Okay. Um, and they kind of wondered like, Ooh, is it a spirit or is the house just cold? We don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably depends on what time of the year you were there because Massachusetts gets fucking cold in winter. Yeah. Um, they were able to record some strange shuffling noises, kind of the sound of like furniture sliding across the floor, and a really weird disembodied hiss as soon as they went toward where the shuffling sound had come from. Interesting. Um, and the sound of footsteps running up the stairs. There we go. Coffee burp. Yep. <laughs> I one of those too. Um, they catch an EVP that allegedly says, I'll take you to heaven. Um, oh, but do they do the stupid thing where they tell you what it says so you can't actually hear it after that? I mean, this one you can, they, they do say what it says, but it's pretty clear. Like, it's not. I like it. I don't like it when they tell me what I'm supposed to hear because then I hear it. Mm -hmm. I want you to, I want you to let me hear it without you telling me what it is first. I think I, I think I had the same complaint over Eastern State. Yeah. Like, I don't want to hear it. Or I want to hear it. Don't tell me what it says. Yeah, don't tell me what you think it says immediately. Yeah. Play, me, play it a couple a of times and then tell me what you think it says. Yeah. And don't put the subtitle because then I read it. <laughs> um, while performing the seance on the... Oh, wait, hold on. I went ahead. Too far ahead. Okay. While filming by himself in the room where uh, Maggie, Bridget, the housekeeper lived, Zach heard a noise and turned around to find a drawer on the nightstand was actually hanging open. Ooh, don't like that. Um, and there was camera footage just a few minutes before where the drawer was completely shut. And when he goes to open and shut the- he heard a noise basically and turns around and then notices that the drawer is open and it wasn't open. Right. And when he goes over and he tries the drawer opening and shutting it again, it sounds exactly like the noise he heard. And it takes him quite a bit of effort 
to open and close this drawer. And he even goes so far as to take the drawer completely out of the nightstand and open it to make sure that there's not some thing to make it open. Mechanism. Yeah, to like be a jump scare. Um, Which I don't think that there's ever been any allegations of the people at this air this um bed and breakfast specifically setting things up to like be super spooky or like jump scares or anything yeah, like I don't that think, i don't think a lot of those places i imagine that it's like yo, know if you're here and you believe that that's gonna happen you're already gonna your brain's gonna be wired to expect that to happen so we don't need to fuck with you yeah Let's see. While performing the seance on the first floor, so basically they invite back in Liz and um, Eleanor, who they spoke to earlier. Mm-hmm. So they have enough people for the seance. And especially because Liz is a spirit medium, she can... And had already participated yeah, in a seance. she, can, she yeah. can leave the seance in there. While performing it, an EVP was caught upstairs that sounded like, keep on killing. This one was much more vague. Um, and they have this really interesting moment where uh, they catch this EVP that sounds like someone getting really angry. And it's like, tell them about the girl. Ooh. And then Liz has this moment where she is saying that she feels um, everyone in the room, with the exception of Eleanor, who doesn't seem to be being affected by it, but she's like an older lady, so maybe they just weren't bothering her. Maybe she's not in on it. I don't know. But... um, Everyone seems to be getting agitated with one another, even Liz, mm. even Liz the woman hosting the seance. And um, they say that they're not going to talk about it and then immediately start talking about it, which is fucking hilarious, too. So basically, Liz is uh, puts out an allegation that basically saying, like, you don't want you don't want me to tell them your secret. You don't want me to tell them your secret to the ghost. Yeah. Oh. And so the she is evidently from what she's saying, communicating with Andrew and the ghosts of some of the other people in the house who are saying that, and they they don't, they say they're not going to talk about it. They're basically saying that um, Andrew was sexually molesting Lizzie. No! And had been for years. And that that's why she and Emma were spinsters were because he wouldn't let oh. them get married to anybody else. Oh, I hate that. And that that's what culminated in Lizzie finally killing him. Yeah. Um, and not wanting to be with men. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's, yeah, immediately after they say they're not going to talk about it on, on screen, they like bleep out uh, them saying, Andrew, did you blah, like, did you beep, 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 Lizzie? <laughs> like, we all know what you're talking about. <laughs> Like, you're not, you're not hiding what you're talking about here. Yeah. Obviously, there's nothing to actually substantiate that. We'll never know. Um, But that's what they're alleging they're talking about in the situation. And that um, that's why Andrew doesn't want to talk to them is because, and why, and part of it is that there's, they're considering or taking in a theory that he's more aggressive to Liz because her name is Liz. Liz. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Yeah. Um, so eventually they're getting so agitated that the guys from Ghost Adventures decide to end the seance because they're concerned that it's going too far and uh, close the seance and let uh, Liz and Eleanor go home. And then they continue with their um, investigation. So they bring out the spirit box. And this is where they actually got some pretty interesting responses that came through. Uh, one sounds like, thank you, Zach. And it really does. Um, another one comes through after they ask what family died here. And it comes through as Borden. Uh, they ask wow. who they are speaking to. And the box responds twice with Abby. Um, one more response to, can you tell me who attacks people here? To which the spirit box responds, Lizzie. Interesting. So that was pretty much the the evidence that they gathered in the episode. And that's pretty standard with what I was finding as far as um, articles and other people's experiences were a lot of sounds of people walking around when there's no one else in the bed and breakfast or um, going up and down the stairs that are like specifically attached to the room that someone is staying in. Mm -hmm. So there would be like no reason for someone to be using those stairs, but they're hearing people using those stairs to 
pictures of apparitions next to beds that are fucking weird. Like, <laughs> really other Anything way Anything from the it. ghoul boys? I tried to watch their episode like three times and it wouldn't play. Aw, shit. Yeah, it just played the Bermuda Triangle episode. So I don't know if it got taken down for some reason or what. But weird. Yeah, I tried. I even tried watching the Bermuda Triangle episode <laughs> to see if maybe it got crossed. And I tried. But it was just the Bermuda Triangle episode. Yeah, and then I tried the episode after Lizzie Borden. And it was the right episode. It wasn't Lizzie Borden. Huh. And so, I don't know. I tried. I wanted to because, you know, we love them. <laughs> we do love them. I, I was feeling very shamed the whole time. You're like, yeah, I bet they re-recorded that spirit box. <laughs> I was like, I bet they planted that shit. <laughs> um, so, Lizzie Borden and the murders of Abby and Andrew have obviously perme- permeated pop culture. Um, it's led to two series starting Christina Ricci as Lizzie. Both of them are hilariously and intentionally inaccurate retellings of the stories, as in one of them, Lizzie is uh, shown to kill dozens of people with various mm-hmm. instruments. She had a cameo in an episode of The Simpsons in a Treehouse of Horrors episode where she was on the jury of the damned. Um, multiple bands have been inspired to write songs about her or even name their band for her. Two stage productions have been created. I think more than two, but two specifically that I found. One was a ballet in the 40s, and the other was a modern musical with a punk rock riot girl vibe to it. Ooh, uh, like that. Yeah, it's like a four-woman show. Interesting. Um, There have also been a number of movies made with varying degrees of truthfulness, accuracy, and quality (laughs) over the years uh, since the crimes. The most recent film was one from 2018 just called Lizzie. Um, which takes a more kind of serious view on the potential lesbian relationship between Lizzie and Bridget and how um, there were some theories that they were caught in a sexual encounter by Andrew and that could have been the catalyst that led to the murders was that he was going to either reveal it to the community or he was going to send Bridget away or send Lizzie away or something. Yeah, that was actually how I found out about that, um, that theory was people were saying... You know, people talk about it. It was even in this movie. And I was like, oh, is that like a real theory? <laughs> like, my God. Yeah, Kristen Stewart's in the movie, too. And uh, yeah, the uh, and then the whole thing with Nance O'Neill, where it was like she threw these lavish parties for this woman yeah. so that she would like come and hang out with her. And I was like, damn, they were they were doing it. <laughs> um, there are also two books written about Lizzie Borden versus zombies. Oh, nice. I bet she'd do a great job. <laughs> Then, of course, there's the rhyme that everyone is familiar with and the lesser known secondary verse that not as many people are familiar with, which is Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven, he will sing. On the gallows, she will swing. Not. (laughs) Yeah, not to all of that. (laughs) Aside from Andrew Borden being dead. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But yeah, so that's the uh, haunted Airbnb. Um, yeah. You, the the res- reservations for the tours are actually pretty cheap. It's like 25 for the house tour and ghost tour, and then like 35 for the ghost like hunting session. Oh, okay. Um, outside of Halloween and the, the month of October, where all of it gets more expensive. <laughs> yeah. Of course. It's, it's plus supply and demand. Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame him for that. Well, hey, happy Women's History Month. <laughs> <laughs> you go, Lizzie. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, thanks for joining us today while we discuss some of the haunting case of Lizzie Borden. We hope that you'll reach out to us with your own experiences. We want your stories, your questions, and your feedback. So just send us an email at strangeunusualpodcast at gmail.com. And if you are sending a story, we just ask that you put listener story in the subject line so that we can sort through those a little more easily. Have you ever stayed at the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast? Have you ever gotten away with murder? Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, you could tell us that. You definitely (laughs) will not tell the police. <laughs> you can also find us on Instagram at strained underscore unusual underscore podcast or our personal accounts Roy Rampage and Calamity Casey where we post the weird shit from our personal lives. You can find us on Twitter at underscore strange unusual at Calamity Casey and at Roy Rampage. We're also on Facebook. Just search for the strange and unusual podcast. If you'd like, you can join us over on patreon.com slash strange unusual. Um, we've got new content coming on the burners. We've got polls 
minimally once a month for our Patreons to vote on specific topics that we cover, um, access to our Discord, and various other things that we have contemplated and just not acted on yet. (laughs) They're in the pipeline. Yeah. Um, But we understand right now if you can't, my brain just melted. (laughs) Yep, yep. We understand right now if you can't financially support podcast we totally get it um if you can just like share subscribe rate review share us with your friends share us with your enemies play us over the loudspeakers at your work at your school dance if you want to get fired play us or suspended play us on your at your school or your work i am looking to see if we have nope same reviews okay well that was a fun episode i agree okay bye bye (laughs) 